Chapters 16 and 17 of The Old Man in the Corner. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Old Man in the Corner by Baroness Orzy. Chapter 16 Non Proven. There is no doubt, continued the man in the corner, that what little sympathy the young girl's terrible position had aroused in the public mind had died out the moment that David Graham left the witness-box on the second day of the trial. Whether Edith Crawford was guilty of murder or not, the callous way in which she had accepted a deformed lover, and then thrown him over, had set everyone's mind against her. It was Mr. Graham himself who had been the first to put the procurator fiscal in possession of the fact that the accused had written to David from London, breaking off her engagement. This information had, no doubt, directed the attention of the fiscal to Miss Crawford, and the police soon brought forward the evidence which had led to her arrest. We had a final sensation on the third day, when Mr. Campbell, jeweller of High Street, gave his evidence. He said that on October 25th a lady came to his shop and offered to sell him a pair of diamond earrings. Trade had been very bad, and he had refused the bargain, although the lady seemed ready to part with the earrings for an extraordinarily low sum, considering the beauty of the stones. In fact, it was because of this evident desire on the lady's part to sell at any cost that he had looked at her more keenly than he otherwise would have done. He was now ready to swear that the lady that offered him the diamond earrings was the prisoner in the dock. I can assure you that as we all listened to this apparently damnatory evidence, you might have heard a pin drop amongst the audience in that crowded court. The girl alone, there in the dock, remained calm and unmoved. Remember that for two days we had heard evidence to prove that old Dr. Crawford had died leaving his daughter penniless, that having no mother she had been brought up by a maiden aunt who had trained her to be a governess, which occupation she had followed for years, and that certainly she had never been known by any of her friends to be in possession of solitaire diamond earrings. The prosecution had certainly secured an ace of trumps, but Sir James Fenwick, who during the whole of that day had seemed to take little interest in the proceedings, here rose from his seat, and I knew at once that he had got a tidbit in the way of a point up his sleeve. Gaunt and unusually tall, and with his beak-like nose, he always looks strangely impressive when he seriously tackles a witness. He did it this time with a vengeance, I can tell you. He was all over the pompous little jeweller in a moment. Had Mr. Campbell made a special entry in his book as to the visit of the lady in question? No. Had he any special means of ascertaining when that visit did actually take place? No, but— What record had he of the visit? Mr. Campbell had none. In fact, after about twenty minutes of cross-examination, he had to admit that he had given but little thought to the interview with the lady at the time, and certainly not in connection with the murder of Lady Donaldson, until he had read in the papers that a young lady had been arrested. Then he and his clerk talked the matter over, it appears, and together they had certainly recollected that a lady had brought in some beautiful earrings for sale on a day which must have been the morning after the murder. If Sir James Fenwick's object was to discredit this special witness, he certainly gained his point. All the pomposity went out of Mr. Campbell. He became flurried, then excited. Then he lost his temper. After that he was allowed to leave the court, and Sir James Fenwick resumed his seat and waited like a vulture for its prey. It presented itself in the person of Mr. Campbell's clerk, who, before the procurator fiscal, had corroborated his employer's evidence in every respect. In Scotland no witness in any case is present in court during the examination of another, 
and Mr. McFarlane, the clerk, was therefore quite unprepared for the pitfalls which Sir James Fenwick had prepared for him. He tumbled into them head foremost, and the eminent advocate turned him inside out like a glove. Mr. McFarlane did not lose his temper. He was of too humble a frame of mind to do that, but he got into a hopeless quagmire of mixed recollections, and he too left the witness-box quite unprepared to swear as to the day of the interview with the lady with the diamond earrings. "'I dare say, mind you,' continued the man in the corner with a chuckle, that to most people present, Sir James Fenwick's cross-questioning seemed completely irrelevant. Both Mr. Campbell and his clerk were quite ready to swear that they had had an interview concerning some diamond earrings with a lady, of whose identity with the accused they were perfectly convinced. And to the casual observer, the question as to the time, or even the day when that interview took place, could make but little difference in the ultimate issue. Now I took in, in a moment, the entire drift of Sir James Fenwick's defence of Edith Crawford. When Mr. McFarlane left the witness-box, the second victim of the eminent advocate's caustic tongue, I could read, as in a book, the whole history of that crime, its investigation, and the mistakes made by the police first and the public prosecutor afterwards. Sir James Fenwick knew them too, of course, and he placed a finger upon each one, demolishing, like a child who blows upon a house of cards, the entire scaffolding erected by the prosecution. Mr. Campbell's and Mr. McFarlane's identification of the accused with the lady who, on some date, admitted to be uncertain, had tried to sell a pair of diamond earrings, was the first point. Sir James had plenty of witnesses to prove that on the 25th, the day after the murder, the accused was in London, whilst, the day before, Mr. Campbell's shop had been closed long before the family circle had seen the last of Lady Donaldson. Clearly the jeweller and his clerk must have seen some other lady, whom their vivid imagination had pictured as being identical with the accused. Then came the great question of time. Mr. David Graham had been evidently the last to see Lady Donaldson alive. He had spoken to her as late as 8.30 p.m. Sir James Fenwick had called two porters at the Caledonian railway station, who testified to Miss Crawford having taken her seat in a first-class carriage of the 9.10 train some minutes before it started. "'Was it conceivable, therefore,' argued Sir James, "'that in the space of half an hour the accused, a young girl, "'could have found her way surreptitiously into the house "'at a time when the entire household was still astir, "'that she could have strangled Lady Donaldson, "'forced open the safe, and made away with the jewels? "'A man, an experienced burglar, might have done it, "'but I contend that the accused is physically incapable "'of accomplishing such a feat.' "'With regard to the broken engagement,' "'continued the eminent counsel with a smile, it may have seemed a little heartless, certainly, but heartlessness is no crime in the eyes of the law. The accused has stated in her declaration that at the time she wrote to Mr. David Graham, breaking off her engagement, she had heard nothing of the Edinburgh tragedy. The London papers had reported the crime very briefly. The accused was busy shopping. She knew nothing of Mr. David Graham's altered position. In no case was the breaking off of the engagement a proof that the accused had obtained possession of the jewels by so foul a deed. It is, of course, impossible for me, continued the man in the corner apologetically, to give you any idea of the eminent advocate's eloquence and masterful logic. It struck everyone, I think, just as it did me, that he chiefly directed his attention to the fact that there was absolutely no proof against the accused. Be that as it may, the result of that remarkable trial was a verdict of non-proven. The jury was absent forty minutes, and it appears that in the mind of every one of them there remained in spite of Sir James's argument, a firmly rooted conviction, call it instinct, if you like, that Edith Crawford had done away with Lady Donaldson in order to become possessed of those jewels, 
and that in spite of the pompous jeweler's many contradictions, she had offered him some of those diamonds for sale. But there was not enough proof to convict, and she was given the benefit of a doubt. I have heard English people argue that in England she would have been hanged. Personally, I doubt that. I think that an English jury, not having the judicial loophole of non-proven, would have been bound to acquit her. What do you think? Chapter 17 Undeniable Facts There was a moment's silence, for Polly did not reply immediately, and he went on making impossible knots in his bit of string. Then she said quietly, I think that I agree with those English people who say that an English jury would have condemned her. I have no doubt that she was guilty. She may not have committed that awful deed herself. Someone in the Charlotte Square house may have been her accomplice, and killed and robbed Lady Donaldson while Edith Crawford waited outside for the jewels. David Graham left his godmother at 8.30 p.m. If the accomplice was one of the servants in the house, he or she would have had plenty of time for any amount of villainy, and Edith Crawford could have yet caught the 9.10 train from the Caledonian station. "'Then who, in your opinion?' he asked sarcastically, and cocking his funny, bird-like head on one side, tried to sell the diamond earrings to Mr. Campbell, the jeweler. "'Edith Crawford, of course,' she retorted triumphantly. "'He and his clerk both recognized her.' "'When did she try to sell them the earrings?' "'Ah, that is what I cannot quite make out, and there to my mind lies the only mystery in this case. On the twenty-fifth she was certainly in London, and it is not very likely that she would go back to Edinburgh in order to dispose of the jewels there, where they could most easily be traced.' "'Not very likely, certainly,' he assented dryly. "'And,' added the young girl, "'on the day before she left for London, Lady Donaldson was alive.' "'And pray,' he said suddenly, as with comic complacency, he surveyed a beautiful knot he had just twisted up between his long fingers. What has that fact got to do with it? But it has everything to do with it, she retorted. Ah, there you go, he sighed with comic emphasis. My teachings don't seem to have improved your powers of reasoning. You are as bad as the police. Lady Donaldson has been robbed and murdered, and you immediately argue that she was robbed and murdered by the same person. But, argued Polly, there is no but, he said, getting more and more excited. See how simple it is. Edith Crawford wears the diamonds one night, then she brings them back to Lady Donaldson's room. Remember the maid's statement. My lady said, Have you put them back, my dear? A simple statement, utterly ignored by the prosecution. But what did it mean? That Lady Donaldson could not see for herself whether Edith Crawford had put back the jewels or not, since she asked the question. Then you argue— I never argue, he interrupted excitedly. I state undeniable facts. Edith Crawford, who wanted to steal the jewels, took them then and there, when she had the opportunity. Why in the world should she have waited? Lady Donaldson was in bed, and Tremlett, the maid, had gone. The next day, namely the twenty-fifth, she tries to dispose of a pair of earrings to Mr. Campbell. She fails, and decides to go to London, where she has a better chance. Sir James Fenwick did not think it desirable to bring forward witnesses to prove what I have since ascertained is a fact, namely, that on the twenty-seventh of October, three days before her arrest, Miss Crawford crossed over to Belgium, and came back to London the next day. In Belgium, no doubt, Lady Donaldson's diamonds, taken out of their settings, calmly repose at this moment, while the money derived from their sale is safely deposited in a Belgian bank. "'But then, who murdered Lady Donaldson, and why?' gasped Polly. "'Can you not guess?' he queried blandly. "'Have I not placed the case clearly enough before you? To me it seems so simple.' It was a daring, brutal murder, remember. Think of one who, not being the thief himself, would nevertheless have the strongest of all motives 
to shield the thief from the consequences of her own misdeed, I, and the power, too, since it would be absolutely illogical, nay, impossible, that he should be an accomplice. Surely! Think of a curious nature, warped morally as well as physically. Do you know how those natures feel? A thousand times more strongly than the even, straight natures in everyday life. Then think of such a nature, brought face to face with this awful problem. Do you think that such a nature would hesitate a moment before committing a crime to save the loved one from the consequences of that deed? Mind you, I don't assert for a moment that David Graham had any intention of murdering Lady Donaldson. Tremlett tells him that she seems strangely upset. He goes to her room and finds that she has discovered that she has been robbed. She naturally suspects Edith Crawford, recollects the incidents of the other night, and probably expresses her feelings to David Graham, and threatens immediate prosecution, scandal, what you will. I repeat it again. I dare say he had no wish to kill her. Probably he merely threatened to. A medical gentleman who spoke of sudden heart failure was no doubt right. Then imagine David Graham's remorse, his horror, and his fears. The empty safe probably is the first object that suggested to him the grim tableau of robbery and murder, which he arranges in order to ensure his own safety. But remember one thing. No miscreant was seen to enter or leave the house surreptitiously. The murderer left no signs of entrance and none of exit. An armed burglar would have left some trace. Someone would have heard something. Then who locked and unlocked Lady Donaldson's door that night while she herself lay dead? Someone in the house, I tell you. Someone who left no trace. Someone against whom there could be no suspicion. Someone who killed without apparently the slightest premeditation and without the slightest motive. Think of it. I know I am right. And then tell me if I have at all enlisted your sympathies in the author of the Edinburgh mystery. He was gone. Polly looked again at the photo of David Graham. Did a crooked mind really dwell in that crooked body? And were there in the world such crimes that were great enough to be deemed sublime? End of chapters 16 and 17